Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very special siblings episode, joined by Michael and I's almost favorite siblings. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Michael Wiafe. And I'm your host, Demetria Wack. This is Policy Wise. On January 6, 2021, many of us witnessed an armed mob storm the U.S. Capitol to prevent the certification of what they claimed was a fraudulent election. While many of us were shocked by this, if we had the information they did, there's a good chance we wouldn't have been. Work by the Election Integrity Partnership reveals that the insurrection was the culmination of months of online mis- and disinformation directed towards eroding American faith in the 2020 election. With us today to talk about broader issues with social media regulation and the impact of misinformation surrounding the insurrection, Morgan is a doctoral student from the Department of Social Science at the University of Washington. He studies proliferation of new technologies, violence, and barriers to growth in developing countries. He currently works for the Center of Informed Public, which specializes in understanding information dynamics. His research mainly focuses on discerning how communication technologies can serve to augment efforts aimed at mitigating the deleterious impacts of violence in Sub-Saharan in Africa. He currently holds a master's in global politics from the London School of Economics and served with Princeton Africa Fellow and has also worked for a variety of development organizations, NGOs, and government agencies. He also has the distinct pleasure of being my older brother. Morgan, would you like to add anything to your bio and tell us why this is an important issue for you? Well, first, I'd just uh, like to start off by saying anything Demi's told you about me is definitely misinformation. So he got that <laughs> off the bat. Um, no, I think that's a good, a good summary. I will give you just a brief overview of how I got into the misinformation sphere because it wasn't always what I was doing. Um, essentially, when I was working for the Clinton Health Access Initiative in South Africa, part of what we had to do was advertise or try to recruit people to join a variety of programs, whether they're based on PrEP or whether they're based on circumcision and a number of other programs that have been shown to reduce uh, either your incidence of HIV or to help you deal with HIV once you've contracted it. And one of the major problems that we faced was the proliferation of rumors in tight-knit communities. And so that's how I first encountered what you would call you know, the deleterious consequences of rumors of misinformation, um, of the spread of falsehoods, essentially. And surprisingly to myself and, and to others, one of or many of the models that we use when doing kind of the computer science side of misinformation are based on real world um, trajectories of misinformation in small communities, in cities that are more analog and less, less online. So I use that role to get a position during my PhD with the Center for an Informed Public, which is run through the University of Washington. And they do a lot of very advanced computer science investigations into misinformation. Great. Thank you so much. And um, could you just start off by telling us what the difference between mis and disinformation is? Sure. Yeah, I will uh, say I'm not a huge fan of the use of these terms. Generally, misinformation is seen as anything that's false. It's, it's more based on intent. So if you retweeted something that you were like, oh, this is crazy. You know, the one example is like the 5G towers. If you didn't know that was false and then you were like, everybody stay away from those 5G towers. They're giving you COVID. That would be misinformation. You didn't actually have any intent to spread it. You were trying to help people. It was still false. Disinformation is usually seen as deliberate attempts to mislead. It's most likely, it's usually used in tandem with things like propaganda. It's associated with kind of Cold War, Russia versus United States uh, espionage. But really, 
one single piece of misinformation can be both. It could be misinformation and it could be disinformation. If the first person who shared it said, whoa, COVID towers, it seems like my, my neighbors got it and they live next to that 5G tower. And the next person said, well, that's obviously false, but that seems like a great rumor I can start. And they spread it. It would be misinformation the first time, disinformation the second time. So I think it, it gets confusing. I don't think it's as important. And just thinking about what the intent is, is more, more the difference. Got it. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> Better than a Mr. Information. Am I right, ladies? Yeah, that, guy, that guy is suspect. <laughs> <laughs> well, Morgan, it seems, it seems like this is like a, an emerging kind of field within the study of political science and kind of like a, a new phenomenon, I guess, of sorts that's happening nowadays. I guess my, my question is, um, how is social media contributing to it? And is social media like the main cause of it? it or, you know, you mentioned kind of going back to, to, the, to the Cold War that this has kind of been going back for a while, but I guess maybe wasn't as widespread. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, I mean, misinformation particular, so just accidental falsehoods have been around since, you know, humans could talk, probably since we could gesture. We would say, stay away from that area, you know, spreading rumors about witchcraft and all these other things that have been around for a very, very long time. And they usually go along the lines of specific communal norms or specific um, community values that certain people want to espouse. In modern times, so really disinformation comes around in full in the 20th century between Russia and the United States. There's um, a few excellent books on disinformation and kind of the growth of that as a tactic in global warfare during the 20th century. Like you said, while this was common and a lot of times in local communities, it can be even more pernicious than online. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Because if it's someone you really trust, if it's a tribal leader, if it's a council one, then you are probably going to fall for that piece of misinformation you know, more firmly than you would have if it was online. Let's just think of the Salem witch trials. However, with the advent of the internet, what you really get is just an amplification of the amount of misinformation, for one, and the ability of people to target misinformation as a second step. So you, while it has always existed, it's never been such a competitive market for misinformation. Um, and you can see that all around the world. Misinformation has become a part of democratic politics. Um, and there's a lot of very troubling trends that suggest that very little chance that in 20 years we're going to be saying, remember when we had misinformation? That was a crazy time. That's very, very unlikely. And so it's, it's here to stay and we need to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. And I also think, you know, the social media kind of and, and kind of big, big data broadly is basically trapping people in their bubbles. Right. Or I think if you're in more of those analog communities, you don't necessarily have a choice. Um, it just kind of happens. Right. Like you might see a newspaper, the cover of a newspaper, you might hear something in a store. But with social media, when you're interacting, um, the app might choose based on your interactions who they think you might be interested in, what information you might want to hear and reinforce your current beliefs. And, and I'm sure that that's that's kind of add, adding something here, too, as well. Yeah, there's a lot of 
overlapping frames and frameworks for this. It depends, you know, right on the type of platform, right? The, the videos you're going to see on YouTube that contain misinformation are going to spread in a way that's different than something you might see on Twitter, or something you might see on Reddit, depending on how those platforms reward certain types of information, so, such as Reddit, which I actually really like in terms of how it treats misinformation because it has a like and a dislike button. A lot of these platforms don't. So if you have a controversial piece of content on something like Twitter, if a bunch of people engage with it, it's going to be towards the top. And algorithmic amplification, which we can talk about later, which is kind of what you're getting at, will reward that content. And so they have to be really on top of it. Whereas if you post something obviously false on Reddit, it usually gets downvoted into oblivion and nobody can see it anyways. And so there's different platforms, the way they're set up mm. can reward or disreward certain types of misinformation. That's great. That's very interesting. Um, before we get into that, so I want to talk about the the different things that might work, which governments can do and all that. Um, but I first want to just uh, kind of cap, like go back to what Michael said regarding the groups that people are getting in and kind of like that feedback of information and staying within a bubble. How big of an impact are, are we seeing within misinformation? Are people just becoming more radicalized? Are people shifting sides? Um, would this, does this even have like a big impact considering people might already have these ideas? But we used to call this the million dollar question, but if you've seen, uh, the social network, you know, this is now the billion dollar question because of how much that's writing on, on the answer to this exact query. There isn't as much information or, available data that shows that misinformation is having a substantial impact. And that's not because we don't think it is. It's because the data just doesn't exist. The reason we pick on Twitter so much is because Twitter is the unfortunate um, value system of allowing researchers to use their data. So we generate 90% of our data from Twitter because they actually let us, which is sort of unfair to Twitter um, and really biases against things like Facebook, where it's harder to get data. It's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. Things like YouTube, very, very difficult because you can't just, you know, code and look through videos. You're not going to sit down and watch hour long videos. And so we can talk about some of those things in a bit. But I, I think in terms of impact, you mentioned at the beginning, the capital riots, there have been shootings in Brazil. There have been many places where there have been, um, you know, lynchings of minority groups. And I think that we see these specific instances and we can point to that and say, you know, this was at least exacerbated by the amplification of misinformation online. And so there are instances where we can show that it probably wouldn't have turned out the way it did otherwise. We can't say individually without experimental evidence, you know, what's the impact on an individual person because people are so different, right? A lot of mistrust from misinformation in Africa as well. So in a lot of studies in Africa show that areas that were impacted by the slave trade have substantial distrust of the government and their local communities compared to areas that weren't. And that was, you know, hundreds of years ago. So the distrust and the deep-seated roots of these problems stretch back far longer than social media. And we haven't really come up with a way of assessing how it will affect certain people. One thing I, I'll bring up is the, the work of Betsy Levy-Palak out of, out of Princeton. I think her work is fascinating and extremely troubling. And she does a lot of stuff on meta-beliefs, which is essentially what you believe other people believe. And so I think with echo chambers, they get overstated a bit, but I do think that this idea of meta-beliefs is really where the problem occurs. The idea is if I think, if I go online and I see a bunch of people talking about, uh, we'll just go back to the, the 5G towers, and it's all my friends, it's people I respect. I think that you all at least are considering the idea that it could be spreading COVID. And I am now much more likely to behave as if I believe it. 
evidence suggests that I don't actually change my belief very often. If I don't think that COVID causes, um, you know, 5G towers don't cause COVID to spread, I probably won't uh, believe that or change my belief. But what I will do is I'll change my behavior because all my peers are saying this might be true. So I probably won't tweet a fact check. I probably won't speak out against the spread of that. And I might even retweet something if I think, you know, my friends are going to like it, even if I don't actually believe it. And I think that is a real threat. If we are in these bubbles where we actually believe people around us believe crazy things. And you can see this with some of the people in the Capitol riots and the QAnon phenomenon. It's not just on the right. There's some groups on the left as well, not as many. But that is one of the major issues that I think you're getting at. Morgan, I might have to hit you with a really tough question. Um, right. And because and, I'm over here, my wheels are spinning um, because I think that this is something that we don't talk about enough and is actually affecting us in a lot of ways. Um, I, um, for those listening, uh, my school very recently, the Goldman School at UC Berkeley, just opened up uh, a center for security and politics um, to to look more into this issue, um, seeing as you know technology is evolving, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really curious, and and what you're you're describing with um, meta, what was what was it called again? Meta meta beliefs, yeah. There's a couple different meta, meta norms, okay. meta beliefs, yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, with meta beliefs is what I'm thinking is that that affects young people a little bit heavier. You care a lot more about what other people think, um, especially around high school, maybe middle school, early years of college. Um, you might grow out of it a little bit, but with, with social media being used by young people, I, I think, uh, much more than, uh, uh, older folks and them caring a lot more what people think. Um, what is the impact that this might have on young people and how might you guess that this might develop into the future as they, as they slash we, um, uh, kind of develop our political beliefs, um, start to engage more civically and, and basically what can we see from the future and maybe what are we seeing now? Um, and is there a generational difference? Well, I think there's certainly a generational difference in the amount of time spent facing these issues, right? Like, I think even, and this may date myself a little bit, but as a, as a, you know, a young kid, as a teen back in the day, I didn't have a cell phone until I was like 16. That's just because uh, they weren't really around. We didn't really have the internet that often. You could go on there and look at cat videos, but it wasn't really the same thing. You could go online and you could look at, you know, games and you could check the scores of sports events, but you didn't really talk to your friends like people do today. And I have a, a younger brother who's a lot younger than me and he grew up, you know, his entire life has been, he's been connected to his friends through these digital technologies. And I don't think it's inherently good or bad. I could see it going both ways. I can see just as you're worried about younger individuals being so concerned with their social groups, which is kind of something that's just ingrained in you know, humankind in general, right? We grew up in small groups for thousands of years. We want the people that we live with to like us. Now we've added this new technology that basically, you know, amplifies that just in an insane degree. I could also see if we are able to change the curriculum, if we're able to get into people's minds, be able to help them discern between what is reliable, what is legitimate um, evidence, then the fact that there's so much misinformation could actually end up you know, canceling itself out at some point in time. If everyone, if you grow up in an area where everything is mixed with misinformation, you're not just going to believe everything. You'll probably just be, you'll pick your three or four people that you follow, that you actually believe, your three or four sites. 
and you'll say, okay, this is probably true, or at least you'll check a second source because you know these types of things happen very often. That's why you know certain types of scams only work for a little while once people grow accustomed to them. And that doesn't mean that misinformation won't become more complex, and I can talk about how it has already in response to some of the platform uh, policies. But I do think that I'm a, I'm a little less pessimistic about the long run for youth. I think there's still many challenges, but I'm encouraged by the fact that I think from what I've seen, they actually are more capable of dealing with misinformation than some of the older generations. You have a really good point because now when I think about it, it myself and it, basically everyone I know, like you, you double check just about everything <laughs> that you that you might see or hear. Um, and and I engage quite a bit on social media, and uh, I think definitely since since basically since COVID started, I think. Uh, a lot more people are reaching out for validity of information. Like we'll send an article and be like, Hey, is this true? Uh, my sister does that to me all the time. <laughs> uh, hey, is this true? Just saw this. Or especially when the election was coming around, like, Hey, is this true? Oh, I was looking for more information. Um, I think the internet is really accessible to us and that we've grown really accustomed to just using it to our advantage. So I, I didn't actually think about it being, you know, kind of something that we've navigated around, but, but now that you mentioned that, it's a really good point. Always tough to express optimism. It's not all, it's definitely more bad than good at the moment, but uh, I hold out hope for, for some of the positives as well. And you mentioned that it might, uh, 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 that there are ways in which it's complicated, right? That it's further getting complicated. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Do you want to tell us uh, how it's gotten more complicated and maybe which directions it might go in? So this kind of gets into the differences in the platform policies and the instigation of actual political legislative policies against social media platforms in recent years and in recent months, really, this has really heated up and was a big issue with the election, with the banning of specific people after the Capitol riots and that sort of thing. One of the problems with just espousing specific rules or laws to govern such complex communication environments is that, like we've discussed here, they're all different. They all have their own peculiarities. They all engage differently with the population they're trying to reach. They allow for different types of information to be on their platform. Some of them are harder to moderate than others. Like I mentioned, YouTube is incredibly hard to moderate because you can't just train a system to pick up certain words. You actually have to like content watch videos, which is very difficult. And so we see a lot of misinformation on, on YouTube for that reason. But what we don't necessarily account for is that, and I haven't really talked about this yet, but when in my work for the, the Center for Informed Public, which we worked in the Election Integrity Partnership, um, which has been featured in a couple of New York Times posts and, and the Atlantic piece by Rene DiResta recently, um, which maybe you can link to in your show notes, we essentially found that a lot of the misinformation was being spread by strategic actors, right? They're filling this niche and taking stories that would otherwise just disappear on Twitter because somebody said something strange or somebody saw something strange and they're amplifying those to a massive audience because that's the niche they're finding themselves in. Um, and we haven't really accounted for that in the current rules. And I think this is a big challenge for the platforms themselves because what they do is when they start to ban people, they say, oh, we're going to ban you for using, you know, for saying that the election is fraud. So of course, what do people do? They don't say that exactly, but they heavily suggest. So they think, use things like hedges, right? They'll be like, was the election fraud, uh, fraud? Or they'll quote somebody from offline. They'll be like, Trump says the election is fraud. And so they use these kind of legalistic ways of getting around any type of boundary. And, and people who follow these individual users know the frames that they're reaching at. So if they were to just to say, mail found in a ditch, they would know that 
that mail may contain ballots and those ballots might be involved in the election. So they don't even have to say anything that could possibly get people banned because everyone knows the frame of reference that they're drawing from. And so it's more difficult than just saying, okay, if we could get rid of all this, what would the impact be? I don't even think you could get rid of all of it, even if you weren't worried about, you know, First Amendment violations and that sort of thing. Morgan, I'm really curious because you mentioned that YouTube has um, uh, uh, challenges um, because it's hard. It's harder to to kind of mon- monitor videos, right? Um, I'm really just kind of off the side, curious whether TikTok has the same challenges as YouTube, and how maybe an app like TikTok would go about it, um, or is it easier because they're one minute videos? Yeah. So. One of the the main issues is that on YouTube and on TikTok, it's much easier to grab or to locate the titles of videos or the content or the text that's within the video. And so when that doesn't match, especially with sophisticated users who are attempting to spread disinformation or misinformation on purpose, one of the main videos that uh, we ran into during the election uh, that was misinformation was titled like hip hop beats 2020. And it was just about, it was just, they were just reporting fake results for the election. And it got seen by like 50,000 people before we spotted it because it was about hip hop. And so totally, you know, went past us. And I think we basically ran into it uh, based on, you know, sheer luck. And so those sorts of things are really difficult. We did have, you know, not as many on TikTok during the election process where we were following and tracking misinformation with a, with a lot of undergrads employed. But there were some, there were certainly some, um, I would imagine it's very difficult. I don't know TikTok as a platform as well. And their content moderation, they are kind of famous for not sharing much information at all. Um, and so it's difficult to say comparatively, but anything with videos is a, is a, you know, massive challenge, especially when you get sophisticated users that are attempting to utilize the fact that it's difficult to track videos to get past sensors. That's, that's kind of a good point. In my usage of TikTok um, and YouTube, I, I've i noticed, and again, this just might be like my bubble. I've noticed that since it's because it's a lot younger users, that it is kind of a little bit more on the left, like in general, just of the like the people who are using the app. Um, so that might have something to do with it, although there is definitely dis- misinformation and disinformation, but um, I, I think that it's in a different way in which we normally talk about it uh, uh, especially when we're in the context of the the January 6th riot. So my next question is how much of the res- how much of the responsibility is on our public and elected officials? Uh you mentioned earlier that instead of, you know, people saying um this happened like uh, oh like you know the the election was stolen they might say Trump says the election was stolen. And so then you add kind of this um I'm thinking this aura of credibility like this veil of credibility because of the title and so how much how much of the responsibility is on our public officials and should there be a little bit more of a crackdown on people who get elected to spread actual information? Yeah, so a number of our repeat spreaders is what they call the individuals on, on Twitter and Facebook during the election uh, that were involved in the highest number of tweets that had to do with misinformation, the highest number of tickets. Uh, you can find the report on, on the EIP's uh, website. They were at times elected officials, at times hyperpartisan media networks. There were also just, you know, random people who are making a name for themselves in this ecosystem. But a lot of the time, it was people who already have a platform who are using that platform to deliberately spread 
delegitimizing narratives about the election. When we're talking about what is the responsibility of elected officials, I think it's difficult because the law, even though it should be applied equally in an ideal system, is never going to be treating legislators and politicians the same way it treats the public. And so you have a, a massive issue where you know it would require it would require the parties to come down on their own and risk losing members of the House or the Senate or the presidency to really crack down on these things, um, unless they're going to go after them after they leave office. And so that's something you know maybe we'll see in the future. But as of now, it's not technically illegal to spread a lot of misinformation. And a lot of times, the misinformation we haven't really talked about individual examples, but I can I can go through those if you'd like at some point. A lot of time they're not false. Sometimes they you know they'll share a video of a USPS truck dumping mail. It's from 2014, but they don't say that. And so they say, oh, someone's dumping mail. It could be about ballots. That's technically it was true. That actually happened, but it was in 2014. Or maybe you see something where, you know, three ballots were dumped out on accident and they spread that as, and they frame it in a way where it's like, this is going to threaten the election when three votes in Florida is, you know, entirely inconsequential. Um, so it's a lot of times what your frame is, and it's not necessarily misinformation. So it would be very difficult to legislate against those types of narratives, even if they were members of the general public, as we've seen. Quite a lot of these repeat spreaders do do this. And while they can be kicked off platforms of current, they can't actually be prosecuted for spreading these types of narratives. One one more question in this line of questioning. Uh-huh. And more- yeah for being great with these because I'm, I'm just kind of like, like, you know, probing the issue. Um, I, I'm, I'm not personally uh, uh, afraid to say that I'm not a fan of Tucker Carlson. Okay. So I, I watched uh, Fox news just a few times and um, there was some moments where uh, there were some lawsuits against Fox news and Tucker Carlson. And there, so Fox news was saying that, um, it's because his show is not meant to be taken literally and that it's political satire. Um, and that was the argument and it worked. And the judge said, okay, like if it's not, you know, if it's just like political satire or comedy, but if you're watching it, it doesn't seem like that at all. Like he seems very serious. Uh, cause you mentioned like a lot of these people actually already have a platform. Um, and so that was kind of the example that came to my head. And this was an actual lawsuit when thinking about news outlets, how much, how much responsibility do they have in that same kind of idea to to also say things in a way that isn't just reinforcing beliefs, but is but is actual fact. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably it's more of a legal question than I can really answer. It's I'm, I would suggest that when you so think of it this way: if you are competing as a news organization and you only ever want to report on things that are verifiably true, you are going to be competing with thousands, if not tens of thousands of other news organizations about that specific story that you have to write in a specific way to portray the facts correctly. Mm-hmm. You either need to be the New York Times where you have the best writers and you can separate yourselves that way, or you need to come up with some other angle. For a lot of people, that other angle is embellishment or just deliberately coming up with falsehoods. And I think that's a lot easier when you reap the rewards of that. If you're the only one competing on a certain axis with these mm-hmm. news stories, you're going to gain a lot more attention, a lot more likes, a lot more money to buy you know, the best lawyers in the world. And then you can win a lot of court cases. And so I think those all play a factor. I don't know the specifics of the Tucker Carlson case, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's probably more of a legal question than I, I can answer for you, unfortunately. 
Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Thanks, Morgan. Yeah. So, Morgan, we kind of have talked a little bit about some of the things that uh, social media sites can do, some best practices there. Um, we've also talked like a little bit about uh, things that the state can and can't not regulate. Um, and I don't think we've gotten too far into it, but just but I would like to maybe get into it a little bit with this next answer. Um, and it kind of goes if like if you were in charge, if you had like a magic wand uh, or you were like, you know, the president or maybe like the president of the whole world. But let's just focus specifically on the United States. What would your policies be? What would your strategy be to stop the spread of dis and misinformation? Actually, here to uh, promote my candidacy for president of the world. So that, that works out well. <laughs> It's a tough question because we've been talking about the nuances that are involved at individual platform levels. I think a lot of the focus on Section 230, which is really the only major piece of legislation that deals with content um, of social media platforms, is a bit more complicated than people would like to say. Uh, Some places, they just want to repeal the entire thing, which is probably not a great idea either if you were to make it that all social media platforms were completely liable for everything that got published on them, which is the exact opposite right now. Section 230 basically uh, limits their liability for content is more broadly, it's very specific, but that's generally the the frame. And it was uh, created far before we really knew what social media was going to turn into. So they've made this into a billion dollar, trillion dollar industry um, off the fact that they don't necessarily have to do much moderation. Repealing that completely and making them liable for everything would require essentially a turnover of the entire industry. And maybe you think that's a good thing. Maybe you think that's a bad thing. But what it would do is it would probably push a lot of these people to new sites that are you know, more black markets for really radical thought. And we've already seen that a bit with some of the blowback against um, the banning and the marginalization of certain, certain people online. I think that is slightly overblown. Uh, but I will say that in terms of your thought on what would I do for one, I'll be self-serving just like you. And I I really think that it should be required that this data be public, or at least that the data be made available to people who can test and understand what the best policies are. That is a major, major problem at the moment. Like you said about TikTok, we have no way of knowing what works on TikTok. We have no way of knowing how much misinformation is even on TikTok because it's incredibly difficult to track. Even on Twitter, where we they basically make most data available, pretty much all data, they do a great job. You have to give Twitter some credit for that. It's much easier to track misinformation. We still have a trouble stopping it, but we're, we're able to test things and at least improve and iterate in ways that we're not able to on other platforms. So I think that would be one of my major priorities. Second thing would be something like, like you're talking about, Demi, with, with education. I think some of the Nordic countries have already included in their curriculums specific classes or specific seminars on how to deal and spot misinformation, how to find credible sources, those sorts of things that we can implement pretty easily. And obviously it's not a short-term solution. This will take, you know, 15 years for these people to go through school and to see these things and come out the other side. But as we talked about before, misinformation is going to be around, you know, for the foreseeable future. And so we need to prepare the people who are going to be dealing with that and running the world in the information age to have a better sense of what it is, how to spot it, how to fight back against it. Got it. Okay, thank you. And uh, the, coming from the other side, as a, as like a you know media consumer, disinformation consumer, um, what can young people and and really all people be doing within their own circles in order to help the stop of this? 
Um, as well as, you know, are there specific policies or politicians who are working on these who can be supporting or are there certain bills that are out right now who we can get behind and advocate for? Um, or is this going to be, uh, are we really starting from, you know, the very grassroots, the very roots of the grass at this point? <laughs> we're down in the sod, I think. We're, we're beneath the grass in the sod. Yeah. Uh, in terms of specific politicians, there has been a few proposals. I think they're a little bereft of, of content, but I think drawing attention to these issues and saying this is a priority actually has gone fairly well recently. I think both sides, it's one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats kind of agree on. Most people think that these platforms have too much power and that we need to do something about it. The problem is getting everyone to agree what that should actually be. And so that's going to be the challenge. I think listening to shows like this and educating yourselves first as a person to know when you are able to spot and dissuade people from believing in misinformation is really important. If you're talking about individual people who have, you know, maybe some fairly radical views, they believe something like QAnon or the 5G COVID conspiracy, something like that, try to find middle ground and understand that, you know, there are definitely nefarious actors like we've talked about, but a lot of people just get caught up in the fact that there's so much misinformation it feels as if somebody must be controlling it all. People like to make sense of the chaos. And so meeting people halfway and saying, okay, I understand why you would be distrustful of certain institutions or certain people. Can we talk through this and try to find what is actually going on here? What pieces of this information are credible is very important. In terms of wide scale improvements, I do think that you know, writing to your state council, writing to your local council and saying, this is an issue that we care about in this community it's a collective action problem, right? It's not affecting any one community. And that's how you get people to respond. It's affecting everyone at the same time and in different ways. And so coming together and getting your friends or your groups of friends to really think through these issues, when you encounter a piece of misinformation, don't just let it go, you know, say, hey, that's actually wrong. Reach out to the person and say, oh, sorry, I don't know if you, you meant to do this, but here's actually a fact check on that. Just wanted to let you know. Those sorts of things can be really important and can, you know, fight back against what is really a communal problem, right? It's about online treatment of individual to individual contact. And so you kind of have to fight back at that individual level. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Um, And throughout this work, has there been anything, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things that I found personally surprising, but has there anything that, has there been anything that you found since working on it more recently that uh, is like unexpected or like surprising and something that you feel like everyone should be aware about? Well, we talked about the repeat spreaders, which is probably the the most interesting outcome of the research we've done so far. We're we're doing a lot of we're currently you know coding. We have hundreds of thousands of bits of data that we have from this, and we're still working on putting these into papers and getting our outcomes. So hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll be able to come up with some more specific results. So follow the Center for Informed Public if you want to learn more about that in the future. But part of this, the repeat spreaders thing, I would have probably guessed that a lot more of it was kind of bottom-up, grassroots-driven, something catches on, some rumor, and it just kind of spirals up and reaches somebody. I would, I did not anticipate as much of an active strategic influence of individual actors who are strategically picking stories they think are going to catch on or fit their narrative and then spreading them to a wide audience. I think that's really fascinating. The second thing, just as more of a content curation idea that might be more fun for listeners, is kind of the diversity of misinformation that exists online. Uh, we waded through, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of pieces of misinformation to try to reach out to platforms and get them to take things down before they spread. 
And some of my my favorite ones, actually, my I'll just go into one. My favorite ticket was um, this piece of misinformation that I believe actually was on TikTok. So this was a TikTok one, and it went over to Twitter, and it was on a couple other platforms. And so it jumps between platforms. That's another issue is that even if you stop it on Twitter, you get them to take it down. If it's already been taken off and now it's on Reddit and now it's on, it can be very difficult. So you really need to catch it right at the beginning. Um, it was a video of a truck dumping what they said were ballots into the desert. And there was this big narrative about it. And then somebody finally found the original video and it was from 20, I believe 2016 in Saudi Arabia and it was expired chicken. And it was just being, and that was like repurposed as like a ballot thing. It was, it had nothing to do with it. And then the worst part, the best and worst part was after we had taken this down and very obviously false, the platforms, we reached out, they took it down. Like two weeks later in the Chinese community, a couple of our Chinese coders were like, this video is coming up again. And they were talking about it. And it was the same stupid Saudi Arabian expired chicken video that had reached a different community of people that it was harder for us to track because we don't have as many Chinese speakers. And so these types of misinformation, I mean, it's fascinating, also terrifying, right? Even if you catch it right away and you get people to act right away, it can spread in so many different ways that it's you know near impossible to stop a compelling video uh, from going viral, at least in certain circles. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing. And I guess like importantly from that, I do, I do more of a suggestion um, for the people. So there's obviously the repeat spreaders. Uh, is there any attempt to call the people who share that information, the people who are consistently sharing that information, double dippers? Or has that not made its way into the literature yet? I think double dippers is is tip of the tongue. I think you follow along Congress if you watch C-SPAN. There's a lot of double dipping talk. So I think that's your, your place to go for that. During COVID, too. It's awful. Thank I'll you. bring it up. My next academic article, double dippers in the 2020 yeah, election. Perfect. So don't worry. Um, I also wanted to ask, um, has there been any like bubbles or circles uh, that you found yourself in? Um, has there like, and maybe... Maybe you're going to say no, because that's like the obvious <laughs> answer. But um, has there been anything surprising maybe that you've come across in your like that you've maybe potentially almost shared? Um, I know you don't have the most active social media presence, but <laughs> um, is that is that something something that you've uh, you know, you found yourself in? Shots fired. Huh? Take down my my social media mentions. I will admit I'm not as active as I could be, but uh, I'll uh, I'll work on it. Other than being in the the policy wise gang, you know, the policy wise thought bubble that I I find myself in time to time. I, I think no. it's exactly. I think it's better to think of it less as misinformation bubbles and just bubbles, right? Like I am a big Liverpool FC supporter, and I follow along, you know, certain Reddit accounts or whatever to get my Liverpool FC news. That's a bubble, right? It's just not misinformation. Maybe some of it is. We're probably not as good as they say in those circles, but it's not corrosive. It helps me, you know, get that fix of social contact that these sites are good at. And there's a reason billions of people have a Facebook account, right? You can contact with people overseas. You can contact with people who have specific interests, especially on places like Reddit, where you can go to specific subreddits that you find interesting. And so I would consider those, they're bubbles, right? We are looking at things through a specific viewpoint. In terms of misinformation, I don't know if I am in any that are, you know, there is a overwhelming amount, but I guess maybe they're tricking me and I, I'm in a few that I, I haven't discerned yet. But uh, yeah, I think it's useful to think of it as so all social bubbles have the potential to turn into, you know, echo chambers or misinformation bubbles. Whether or not they are is more about content and viewpoints than it is about you know, the organization of the group. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's made it this far in the conversation is thinking like, what the heck can I do? What do you think is like the the 
the action the action plan for folks who just want to combat this in their day-to-day life and what can young people do um, in policymakers more broadly to, to be more conscious of this issue? Well, I have a Venmo account. They can uh, send it straight to me and I'll take care of it. Uh, <laughs> no, in, in all seriousness, I think just being aware of this issue and making it known to your friends and to your colleagues that you care about this, following up with people online, like we've talked about and saying, you know, this might be misinformation, reaching out to groups. Let's say you, you get messages from, you know, a relative, a distant relative that seems sketchy. And you're like, I'm just not going to engage. Maybe take the time and say, Oh, what is it about this that you find compelling? Like maybe I can provide you with some information. Join that WhatsApp group that you're invited to see if you can influence any people, uh, that, you know, might have been given disreputable sources uh, on particular issues. I think those types of things we can do in our daily life. I wish there was a larger issue to draw on and say, oh, we just need to get behind this and this is a silver bullet. Unfortunately, it's such a complicated issue that there really aren't any silver bullets. And so what we really need to do is improve the foundations, right? We need to improve the structures that allow us to combat this as a community, as a nation, as a globe. And so that starts with education. That starts with, um, you know, coming together as a group and becoming less polarized, reaching out and trying to understand what the other side is saying about specific issues, why they believe certain things, why they're so distrustful of the system. And so I think engaging is the first step. And maybe you'll come out the other side, you know, better informed yourself. And then and then uh, you'll have information for us that we can use to, to reach out to a larger group. So that'd be what I'd say. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Morgan. I have the pleasure of having this conversation with, with two wax on this conversation. Yeah. Um, That's <laughs> too, so too many wax. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was yeah, great. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Policy Wise. We are your hosts, Demetria and Michael. Michael and I would love to hear from you. What topics would you like to hear about and who would you like to hear from? Check the episode description for a link to our survey. Thanks. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Youth Leadership Institute makes sure young people are at the decision-making tables across California. And California Forward leads a statewide movement, bringing people together across communities, regions, and interests to improve government and ensure that the economy works for everyone. Jarrett Ramones produced this episode. Social media graphics created by Abby Peel. And the music was sourced from artlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org. And be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion here on PolicyWise.